I was reading a book during the week, and it was a book by um, a lovely minister called Stephen Anderson and himself and his wife Helen of a wonderful ministry based in Scotland. And he wrote a book about the equipping of the believers. And in the book, there was a little passage about Paul and Silas in jail. And he happened to mention in that passage that it was interesting the order in which they were released. In other words, remember that they were uh, sent into a dungeon and they were shackled in a dungeon and their chains came off. But it actually says that that happened in a certain order. And I was really struck by that. And I looked into that this week and God really spoke to me some things about that. I want to share those with you this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 16. I'm going to read briefly these few verses about Paul and Silas in that jail cell. If you haven't, I'll just read it out, actually. You know these verses so well because, of course, I love this story, always talking about these two guys in jail, uh, because these are two men who were singing in the worst day of their life because they they weren't taking the foundation of their life as what was happening to them, but what was happening in them. Praise God. So this is Acts 16 and from verse uh, 25. They'd just been thrown into the jail and shackled. And it says, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. So note the order there was an earthquake that was violent enough to shake the foundations first before the doors opened and the chains fell off. So I'm going to make a statement really and then try and hopefully explain that. Too much ministry attempts to open doors and shake chains off before the foundation has been shaken. I'll say it again. Too much ministry tries to break chains before the foundation has been sufficiently shaken. If the foundations of our captivity are not shaken, then there is no lasting freedom. If the foundations of our captivity are not shaken, then there's no lasting freedom. Now, why do I use the word captivity? Because each of us are captive by what we have believed. That's Proverbs 4.23. It says this, you remember very well, that uh, diligently guard your heart because out of it flows the issues of life. And that Hebrew word issues means borders. In other words, you and I can't live beyond the borders of what we have believed. Therefore, above all things, look at what you're believing because that's your life, what you're actually believing. So that's why I use the word captivity. And um, I often use that example, you know, You might be living in Derry or Castle Bar and you think, I'm fed up with my life. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to move to Hawaii. Well, I've got bad news because when you move to Hawaii and you get up and you look in the mirror, you're looking at the one thing you can't leave behind, what you have believed. (coughs) And if you feel that everybody's against you and you're rejected by people in Derry or Castle Bar or Zimbabwe, when you move to Hawaii, they're going to reject you there as well because what you have believed is actually leading and dominating your life. The Apostle Paul wrote these words, If God is for us, you know, that is such a fundamental earthquake, a shattering, shaking truth, really, that will actually undo the foundation of rejection that's in people's lives. If God is for us, who can be against us? The only truth that's powerful enough to overthrow a spirit of rejection and fear in a person's life is the unmerited favor and acceptance of God given in Christ. 
That is absolutely incredible. It runs contrary to every religious thought in people's minds. But if I don't know the reality of that acceptance, if I haven't had an encounter with the Holy Spirit, really, then I will remain captive to the fear and rejection of this world, that spirit of rejection that God is against me and I need to do something to change his mind. That's the foundation that most people's lives are built on. Now, just as that is true for an unbeliever, it can be true in the thinking of a believer. You can be saved by the grace of God, absolutely true, and yet in your mind be thinking carnally, what the Bible says, immaturely, thinking like an unbeliever, thinking that God is against you and that there's something you need to do to change his mind. And so really there has to be a transformation in our thinking. And of course the Bible refers to that as the renewing of the mind. Well, you're getting a new mind, God's mind on you. And that's, that's, that's the wind. That, that is the wind that comes. And as I'm speaking this, I'm believing like for this truth to be such a wind that it'll shake a foundation in your life, you know. I'm always astonished in John 3.16. is one of these scriptures we quote all the time in that discussion that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus effectively said, well, how can I be born again? And, you know, every evangelical would say, whoa, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to repent and you need to believe and you need to da 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 And you know what Jesus said? Hey, who knows? It's like the wind. The wind comes and the wind goes, you know. You think of Jesus. No, no, no. Tell, tell him he needs to repent and believe. Why did he say that? You feel sorry for Nicodemus. Because the last thing Jesus wanted to do was to give him something to do. See, the flesh loves something to do. You see, if you can do it yourself, you get all the glory. The downside is you then carry the whole burden. Because if you did this yourself, you've got to keep doing it yourself. You see? And that's a, life of, that's a heavy burden to carry. Praise God. That life. That life. So there's an unbreakable link then between what your heart is believing and the life you're actually living. Okay? There's an unbreakable link between what your heart is believing and the life you're actually living. So, if you forget everything else I'm going to say this morning, and you come in just at the right time, John, right? If you forget everything else I'm going to say this morning, you remember this one thing. The life you are believing in is the life you're living. Sorry, you can't break that. The life you're believing in is the life you're living. It's manifesting in your life. You can't help it, you see. You will be what your heart has believed. Jesus knows that. That's why his ministry always went to the heart. He designed us that way. He designed you to be what you believe. Guard your heart above all things, for out of it flows the issues of life. The life you are believing in is the life you are now living. What you and I are believing about God and us is the foundation our lives are built on. Now, I've said that several times to make this point that ministry that does not correct a wrong foundation of belief can have no lasting effect. If the foundations of our captivity are not shaken, there is no lasting freedom. You know, when I was a teenager, I used to work in Mayo. Every summer, I loved it. For six weeks, I was sent to my grandmother's farm, and one of the jobs we learned to do there was pulling band weeds. You know, everybody from the country knows what a bandweed is, isn't it? A ragwort, you know. And one of the things I learned from a young age is there's absolutely no point in cutting the head off those things. If you don't remove the root, when you come back in a few months' time, you've got a worse problem than you had to begin with. 
And so too in a person's life, the real person, the real problem in a person's life is what they have believed. You think about this. Say in your family circle or in your circle of friends, do you know somebody who, um, let me put it like this. Do you know anybody who you're walking in eggshells around? Okay. Uh, you're sort of waiting until they're about, they're about to blow their top, you know. You realize if you say the wrong thing, they're going to go off in a rant, okay? Have that person in your mind? <laughs> All right, <laughs> okay. The problem with that person isn't what they're saying or how they're saying it. You could force them not to say it. You could, but you wouldn't have cured them. You wouldn't have healed them. It'll just break out somewhere else because the issue there isn't what they're saying or the way they're saying it. It's the why. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's the attitude of the heart. It's what they're believing is actually the problem. And Jesus knew that, of course. If the foundations, what we're believing is not shaken, then there's no lasting freedom. So if you're involved in a situation with a person like that, always ask yourself, what's the root of that? Why are they like that? Lord, show me. What's the lie that they have believed I mean, do they actually believe that I'm against them? The whole world's against them, you see? The only thing that's going to shake that belief is the revelation of how much God is for you. Because if God's for you... I remember seeing an advertisement on the television years ago, and you won't have seen this down in Castle Bar, <laughs> because it was an advertisement for the British Army. And in this advertisement, I don't know if anybody remembers this years ago, it showed two groups of soldiers who were facing off against each other. And the, 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 the soldier leading the British contingent uh, he was trying to calm down an African soldier. And this soldier was very irate. He was getting more and more agitated. And as the British soldier was speaking to him, it looked like he was going to reach for his gun, you know. And suddenly, the soldier did something very, very simple, which changed the whole situation and calmed the other soldier down. He took off his dark glasses. He was wearing sunglasses. He took them off so the other soldier could see his smiling eyes. He began to look him directly in the eye. And the other soldier calmed right down. Amazing, isn't it? He realized, you see, in that moment that he, he couldn't out-argue this guy. What he needed to do was go to the root of the problem. It was fear. The guy was afraid. He needed to know that this guy had nothing against him. You know, isn't that beautiful? So when we're dealing with issues in family as such, ask yourself, what's the root? What's the root? Because the foundation has to be shaken before there's a change. Any attempted ministry to open doors and loose chains without the foundations being shaken has a very limited effect. Now, Jesus, he did an awful lot of ministry around tables. You know why? Because he knew that ministry travels down relationship. It's much more powerful if it's heart to heart. And gathering in people's homes was Jesus putting an earthquake against the strongest foundation in people's lives. God's against me. That's the strongest foundation people have in their lives. God is against me. I'm rejected. And here comes God in flesh like a violent earthquake saying, I'm the God who wants to come to your house and have a bit of crack. <laughs> what? What? And even the Pharisees were going, what? Yes, Jesus is. I'm the God who wants to come to your house and have dinner with you. You see, in those days, that meant... I'm, ex I'm accepting you. Me and you are like that. That's what it meant. Me and you are like that. Wow! I'm accepted by God? That's an earthquake to people of a foundation that God is against them. That's what Jesus, that's why he had so much ministry around tables. 
And that's why, so much so that he got a reputation as a wine-bibber and a glutton because he was round tables so often. I think that's just so beautiful. He knew that ministry traveled that way. You know, he knew that so many people were like that. Do you remember Zacchaeus up the tree? <laughs> There's Zacchaeus up the tree, the biggest thief in Jericho, you know? And Jesus comes along and he says, oh, Zacchaeus, come down right now because we're going to your house for a bit of crack. And that hit Zacchaeus like an earthquake to the very foundations. Because every religious person he'd ever met had convinced him utterly that God was against him. God had to be against him. If God was against anybody, surely he'd be against the biggest thief in Jericho. And when Jesus said, come down, I need to eat in your house. Can you see what that was? That was a violent earthquake hitting the very foundations of what Zacchaeus believed, you know? And so what Jesus was actually saying was, repent. You see, because Jesus, when he went into a new area and told his disciples to do the same, the first words out of his mouth were not be healed. It was repent. That's the word metanoia. It means have a total mind change. Fundamentally rethink the way you think. That's all repent means. If it means anything less than that, it has no power. It certainly doesn't mean clean up your act. It doesn't mean that. It can't mean that. God cannot be saying to you, if you'd only try a little bit harder, I'd come to your house for dinner. <laughs> the law was given to show us that that doesn't work. There is nobody has been able to clean themselves up enough to make themselves worthy for God to come to their house for dinner. You know, He did that. What the law was powerless to do, Christ did. That's not your job. So true repentance is not saying, get yourself cleaned up a little bit. And then I'll come and do something for you. True repentance is realizing that he did everything before we could do a thing. That's repentance. That's metanoia, you see? That's totally different. And that's what the gospel is. It's that revelation that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing? So when Jesus says, come down out of that tree, Zacchaeus, I need to eat at your house today, he's saying, repent. But most of the church have such a superficial view of repentance that what they think Jesus should have said was, Zacchaeus, if you'll only pay back everything you've stolen, then I'll come to your house for dinner. That's the way the gospel is preached. If you'll only pay back what you've stolen, then I'll come to your house for dinner. You see, we've made repentance into a work that we have to do in order to make God be good to us. You can't make God be good to you because he's good to you because he's good, not because you're good. <laughs> By the way, he declares you to be good in Christ because he knows that you can only be what you believe. And if you never believe you're good, how are you ever going to be good? This is so powerful. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, you have an outside of the cup ministry. You clean the outside of the cup, but you leave the inside dirty. What he was saying to them is, you just keep telling people to change, but that doesn't change them, does it? You know, you can go to a thousand church services and hear a thousand messages preached against sin and that you should do better, and you'll never change. Because the only thing that changes you is what you are believing. And if you continue after a thousand church services to see yourself and believe yourself to be a dirty, rotten sinner who has to clean the act up a little bit more in order to be blessed, that's the life you're living. 
because you are believing in the life you're living. The life you're believing in is the life you're living. <coughs> if the foundations of your captivity are not shaken, there's no lasting freedom. The reason you're living in a sinful, guilt-ridden life is that the life you're believing in is the life you're living. The life you're believing in is the one you're living. The only answer is the first word out of Jesus' mouth, metanoia. Have a total rethink of the foundation of everything you've believed, praise God. And what truth can be powerful enough to cause the very foundation of my life and your life, I, to be shaken? And the only truth is that I died on that cross and I no longer lives. The only foundation is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That when he died in the cross, your old man died. And when he resurrected, you were resurrected an entirely new creation. In other words, here's the gospel. He starts you from there. He lifts you up and starts says, live from there. He doesn't expect you to crawl your way to there. He places you there and then says, live from there. Then he even gives you the ability to live from there, which is faith. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so as that message is preached, that unbelievably scandalous, generous earth-shattering messages preached, then people find within them, my God, I'm actually believing this stuff. I'm actually believing. How do I know I'm believing? I, I, my depression's gone. I just feel better. I'm believing. I can't believe it. I'm believing. I'm not actually taking what my family are saying to me as who I am anymore. I'm actually got it straight from the horse's mouth. Praise God. If God is for me, what does it matter who's against me? Because all the rejection in the world can't hold a candle to the acceptance you have in Christ. That's a powerful, isn't it? But you know what? It only changes your life when you're believing it. And God gives every grace for us to believe. If only we'd preach it, praise God. That's the, the violence, really, of the, of the gospel. Powerful enough to change our, our believing. The only earthquake violent enough to shake the foundation of I from our life is the gospel of God's grace, not the gospel of your performance against sin. Praise God. If the gospel your heart has believed in has not astonished you, then it was not violent enough to shake the foundation of your life. I. The gospel you're believing in does not astonish you even today. It's not powerful enough to shake the foundation. I. You see, this whole world is based around I, isn't it? This whole world is telling you, John, try a wee bit harder, will you? <laughs> you know, that's the whole world is saying, you know. And so that's why every time I hear the gospel, it should astonish me again. I think, whoo, I need to hear that. Whoa, I needed to be astonished in church today. I needed the gospel to astonish me again because I was not as astonished as I should have been. <laughs> Because when you're astonished every day again, you can live in joy. You can live in power. You can live in authority, you know. Just being astonished. And the Bible speaks about people being astonished uh, right the way through the Bible from start to finish. It's quite amazing. Uh, Jesus' signs and wonders always astonished people, you know. And that word astonished is quite a strong word. It means to smite. It means to overthrow the foundation of what they're believing. Uh, my life, my foundations of my life would change when Nicola was healed. I was astonished that she was healed, you see. Something happened that was powerful enough to shake the foundations 
of my belief that God was against us for some reason. We had to do something in order to merit that, you know. When I saw her at the lowest point of her life get healed and then filled with God's Spirit, I was astonished. And so the Bible speaks about this astonishment that goes right through. But you know what? The most astonishing thing that ever happened is the gospel itself. The most astonishing thing in all of creation is that God came in flesh. That is astonishing. I never want to lose my astonishment at that. That is the power of the gospel. Even the angels find that astonishing. On the day of the incarnation when Jesus was born, the angels stood before the shepherds and said, This is good news of great joy for all people. And if the gospel we preach isn't good news of great joy for all people, it's not astonishing enough. And it's not a powerful enough, violent enough earthquake to shake the foundations of what they're believing. Because the whole world believes God's against them. And you have to make it to a certain mark, because that's the I life. i got to do this by myself. And then comes the gospel. It says, no, God has done it for you. God in Christ reached down to take hold of us and to pull us upward in Christ. And the preaching of the gospel allows the Holy Spirit to do just that, to reach down and to pick people up and to pull them up into this new life in Christ. So they find themselves, when they look down, that their foundation is now perfect, and they're actually standing in Christ with the feet of Christ. Does that remind you of a scripture? The gospel, the shot with the gospel of peace. That's right. But also, can you remember somebody who looked down and suddenly found that their, their, their feet and their ankles were perfect? The cripple at the gate beautiful. Do you remember him? Now, I, I want to look that up, and I'm going to finish by this. I happened, when I, when I looked it up, it happened to pop up as the Passion Translation, which I don't often read. I was so blessed when I read that account of Acts 3, when Peter and John were on the way to the temple. I'm going to read it to you. This is Acts 3 from verse 1. One afternoon, Peter and John went to the temple for the three o'clock prayer. And as they came to the entrance called the Beautiful Gate, they were captured by the sight of a man crippled from birth. That's why most people in their minds are crippled from birth. Being carried and laid before the temple. He was often brought there to beg for money for those going into worship. And when he noticed Peter and John going into the temple, he begged them for money. And Peter and John, looking straight into the eyes of the crippled man, said, Look at us. And expecting a gift, he gave them his full attention. And then Peter said, I don't have money, but I'll give you this. By the power of the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And Peter held out his right hand to the crippled man. And as he pulled the man to his feet, suddenly power surged into his crippled feet and ankles. And the man jumped up, stood there for a moment stunned, and then began to walk around. And as he went into the temple courts with Peter and John, he leapt for joy and shouted praises to God. And when all the people saw him jumping up and down and heard him glorifying God, they realized it was the crippled beggar they'd passed by every day in front of the gate. And astonishment swept over the crowd. There's the wind. Astonishment, the earthquake. Astonishment swept over the crowd. And they were amazed over what had happened. Now, when I read that, and I might have mentioned this before, but, and this is only my opinion, okay? But my spirit jumped when I thought about it. I haven't read this anywhere, right? But this is my opinion. Why did it not say Peter took the man by the hand and pulled him up? Why does it say he took him by the right hand? Why does the Bible do that? The right hand. It says Peter extended to him the right hand. You know, the Bible speaks about the right hand of fellowship. 
In the Bible, when you extend someone the right hand, remember the early church extended to Paul and Barnabas the right hand. It meant fellowship. It meant acceptance. Can you see what that was in the Spirit? That moment in the Spirit, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, extended to that man the fellowship of God. He extended to him acceptance. You see, that man believed he was like that because God had rejected him. Even Jesus' own disciples said, when they saw someone like that, either blind from birth or crippled from birth, who sinned, him or his parents? You see, the right hand of fellowship, the gospel, any gospel that does not extend to people, the right hand of fellowship is no power to shake the foundations of their life. And that's the most beautiful thing. This man, he then is pulled to his feet. You know, he's pulled to his feet. I believe, in fact, that multitudes of Christians lie crippled in their minds like beggars at the gate of the temple, still begging God for what he has already given. And by the power of the gospel of grace, the Holy Spirit can pull you to your feet where you can have a metanoia, a revelation that in Christ you are perfect. You're standing on a perfectly new foundation. You can look down and say, my God, look at my foundation. Whoop! Look at where I'm standing. I'm standing in Christ. I have the feet of Christ. I have beautiful feet. <clears throat> I'm perfect in him. I'm standing in the heavenly realm. Amen. I love that Passion Translation because it says, he stood there for a minute stunned. I think that's what the church are doing right now. <laughs> Before the gospel of grace, they're standing for a minute going, uh, 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 you know. But then, you know, you don't have to stand there stunned. You can start to dance. Amen. You can start to dance. And that's what the most powerful gospel in the world does. If it doesn't set your feet at dancing, if it doesn't change your heart, and so that you're dancing, even on the worst day when you're told you have to self-isolate or you're told, <laughs> you know, if you don't are able to dance on that day when Paul and Silas were shackled, if you're able to sing and dance on that day, when the world sees us dancing in that way, a wave of astonishment will sweep the world and finally, the foundation of what they have believed, God's against us, will be shaken enough when the church starts dancing before them rather than griping at them. Okay, let me finish. If we can admit that our lives perhaps do not look like that of a son of God, then let's not be afraid to listen to a gospel that shakes the very foundations of what we have been believing. Because if the foundations of our captivity are not shaken, then there's no lasting freedom. And that brings us to this table. This table was left. Isn't it beautiful that Jesus left a table? Now, if you have your emblems with you this morning, I'm just going to break bread now by declaring this beautiful truth that is violent enough to shake the very foundations of what you are believing and replace rejection with acceptance. Jesus ate with people because in those days to eat with somebody was to start from acceptance. He says, I'll start you here because if I start you with what I believe about you, you have a chance to have a metanoia because if you believe what I believe, you'll change. But if you don't believe what I believe, then all you'll be is a hypocrite, trying your best to appear to be something that in actual fact you believe you're not. This table was given as a proclamation of the acceptance of God in Christ. There's a welcome to this table. This table is not saying, if you could only clean yourself up a little bit more, then I'd come to your house and we'd eat together. That's not what Jesus said is the case, and that's not what this table says to people. It says that in Christ you were accepted. 
Now, if you can believe that, then you can partake of this table. <laughs> if you don't believe that, then sure, you can eat and drink, but there's no power. The power is in what you believe, you see. And so the table must be open in the sense that it's saying God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Is there faith to believe? If there is, then receive, praise God, and be what God has equipped you to be, a child of God, accepted by God. For if God is for you, who can be against you? And that's what this table says. If God is for you, who can be against you? So whatever the issue is in your life right now that's afflicting you in your physical body, in your family, whatever circumstances, keeps saying to you, that's not true. Just look at your life. Remember Paul and Silas in that jail. They had every opportunity to say, well, where is God then? We just had the worst day of our life. We've been beaten up. We've been falsely accused. We've been thrown in jail. Where is God? And yet those other prisoners never moved when the doors opened. You know why? They were transfixed because the, sh the earthquake had moved their foundations too. They were looking at men who knew who they were and didn't leave this world to tell them who they were. They were looking at two men who had the worst day of their lives and they were laughing. They said, we're not leaving this prison because we'll never find freedom anywhere else but right here in this cell. <laughs> and so this offers you absolute freedom. You can be accepted in Christ. So eat and drink this morning, your acceptance. Eat and drink this life that you have been given. Partake of it. Live it out before the world so that your soul goes out of here dancing this morning and even your physical body is affected. So Father, we just thank you for your shed blood and for your broken body. This is the body of Christ. All who eat of it and drink of it, you said, Lord, share this eternal life. And so we thank you. This is your body, Lord, broken for us. This is your blood shed for us. We are your blood. We are your kin now. And so we eat this with you, hidden with Christ and God. In Jesus' name, praise God.